0: lift liftoff, and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 398, the week in space history for October 21st to the 27th. I'm John Muldix. Let's start off with some Cold War history and talk a little bit about the missile gap. The fourth televised Nixon Kennedy debate took place on October 21st, 1960. President Kennedy had mentioned the missile gap during a foreign policy debate with then Vice President Nixon. The term missile gap was first used in the late 1950s during Kennedy's Senate re-election campaign and then further used throughout that presidential campaign. Let's start off with what the missile gap was. The missile gap was a growing perception in the West, especially in the United States, that the Soviet Union was quickly developing an intercontinental range ballistic missile, or ICBM, capability earlier, in greater numbers, and with far more capability than that of the United States. This quote continues. Although there were several ingredients in the U.S. perception, actually a misperception, the principal ones were effective Soviet secrecy, limited intelligence collection, biased analyses, Soviet deceptive announcements, and the actual Soviet success in testing intercontinental-range ballistic missiles all of them were justified concerns. That quote is from a publication titled Penetrating the Iron Curtain, Resolving the Missile Gap with Technology, and I'll be linking to it in the show notes. It was put together by the CIA and is complete with declassified materials and national intelligence estimates that were focused on the capabilities of the Soviet Union. The dual events of the first ICBM test in August of 1957 and the launch of Sputnik on October 4, 1957 gave the Soviet Union an air of scientific prowess. These early Soviet successes, combined with very public American failures, led to the incorrect belief that the United States was far behind in missile development. In the early 1960s, during these presidential debates, The gap was actually in favor of the United States. In Closing the Missile Gap by Leonard Parkinson and Logan Potter, they described the initial national intelligence estimates that were made up until the launch of Sputnik. The lack of reliable information on the specifics of the Soviet program meant that these national intelligence estimates were best estimates of Soviet capability. There's an interesting table that shows how many Soviet ICBMs were in existence and how many were thought to exist. In January 1960, the estimate stood at 10 ICBMs. By 1961, it had ballooned to between 140 and 200, depending on the estimate. By mid-1963, the estimates had grown further, now ranging from 350 to 640 ICBMs. In actuality, the Soviets had four launchers in the mid-1960s, and only 91 by mid-1963. Effective Soviet secrecy, limited intelligence collection, biased analyses, and deceptive Soviet announcements. Erring on the side of caution, Kennedy had tried to paint the Eisenhower administration as flat-footed when it came to responding to the Soviet technological advances in intercontinental ballistic missile technology. The reality on the ground became clearer with the Highland panel report that looked at how many ICBM launch pads were in operation. Concluding that there were no more than 25 operational pads, the panel believed that the Soviet ICBM threat, quote, should be materially downgraded and that the missiles did not represent an adequate first-strike capability. Now, let's get to some space history. The crew of Apollo 7 splashed down on October 22, 1968. Apollo 7 proved the performance of the redesigned command and service module, and it helped pave the way for later Apollo missions. The Soviet Venera 9 lander touched down on Venus on October 22, 1975. This spacecraft brought us the first pictures from the surface of another planet. The lander was exposed to temperatures around 900 degrees Fahrenheit and pressures from the toxic atmosphere that had crushed previous landers that had made it to the surface of this hellish world. The Venusian atmosphere contains chemicals like hydrofluoric acid, which is extremely dangerous to people and is corrosive enough to break down glass. Also, the extreme pressures create an incredibly dense atmosphere that is absolutely brutal on any spacecraft that's lucky enough to touch down on the Venusian surface. On October 22, 1992, the crew of STS-52 lifted off on a nine-day mission where they deployed the Laser Geodynamic Satellite-2 into a medium-Earth orbit. This interesting satellite looks a lot like a golf ball. Its surface is covered in retro reflectors that allow for ground stations to bounce a laser off of the satellite. Bouncing a laser off of this satellite helps scientists track the movement, or faults, in earthquake-prone areas here on Earth. The satellite is a joint program between NASA and the Italian Space Agency, as well as scientists from over five countries. Next up, we've got the Space Shuttle Discovery. Discovery lifted off on the STS-120 mission on October 23, 2007. This was an International Space Station assembly mission, and it delivered the Harmony module to the ISS. Discovery's crew joined the astronauts already on the station. At the time, there was just three people on the ISS due to the station not having the necessary life support setup for a larger crew. The Harmony module is a utility hub for the station, and it provides, quote, air, electrical power, water, and other systems essential to support life in the station. STS-120 and the ISS Expedition 16 crews were both commanded by women. Discovery and the STS-120 mission was commanded by Pamela Melroy, and Expedition 16 was commanded by Peggy Whitson. Melroy's shuttle flight was the second time that a shuttle had been commanded by a woman after the flight of Eileen Collins on STS-93. Peggy Whitson was the first female commander of the International Space Station, an accomplishment she repeated during Expedition 51. These missions in 2007 were the first time that two female commanders were in space during two different missions. The crew of STS-120 also had a significant piece of pop culture history on board Discovery during this mission. They were carrying Luke Skywalker's lightsaber from Return of the Jedi. Now, before you get your hopes up, nobody was able to take it out and take a photo op with the lightsaber while in space, which is a bummer. I felt a great disturbance in the Force when I found that out. Next up, we've got some somber history. October twenty fourth, 1960 is a very sad day. The Nadellen catastrophe was an accident that occurred with a fully-fueled R-16 prototype missile on a launch pad at the Baikonur Cosmodrome. The second-stage engines experienced a short, which caused them to start, resulting in the second stage burning through to the first stage of the rocket, which detonated it. The resulting explosion killed 78 people according to official numbers, but unofficial numbers range from 92 to 126 deaths. The Soviet Union didn't publicly acknowledge that this explosion took place until 1989, although there were reports in the media about the explosion in the years following the incident. A rush development schedule and lack of necessary safety steps combined for explosive results when the hypergolic fuels ignited on the launch pad. One of the people killed instantaneously during this explosion was the head of the program that was developing the rocket that exploded on the pad. Chief Marshal Nedelin was an essential figure in Soviet space history and in the history of the space race. Let's take a moment to remember the people that lost their lives in this tragic accident. On October 24, 1998, The Deep Space One spacecraft was launched. This was the first mission to utilize an ion engine for propulsion, which is now a technology in use on other spacecraft. Experiments with ion or solar electric propulsion date back to the late 1950s when Dr. Harold Kaufman, an engineer at NASA's Glenn Research Center, designed and built some of these experimental engines. Deep Space One successfully completed its mission of testing the ion propulsion system and capturing science when flying by an asteroid in 1991. On October 25, 1961, NASA announced that the Mississippi Test Facility, now the John C. Stennis Space Center, would be built. Check out the full piece I wrote on Medium in the show notes. Next up, we've got the final free flight of the Enterprise. minutes and one second. That's how short the final flight of the Space Shuttle Enterprise was on October 26, 1977. The Enterprise was used to conduct a series of approach and landing tests that started in February of 1977 and ended on October 26, 1977. These tests validated the flight capabilities of the space shuttle design, ensuring that the orbiters could land and also be ferried on a modified Boeing 747. The last landing was a little rough, with the shuttle bouncing back into the air once after its wheels first touched down, but astronauts Fred Hayes and Gordon Fullerton were able to land without further incident. With the successful conclusion of the approach and landing tests, NASA put the Enterprise to work on a series of ground vibration tests at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in 1978. After that, she was ferried to Kennedy Space Center, where ground crews mated the Enterprise to an external fuel tank and solid rocket boosters to ensure the shuttle had a proper fit before the upcoming launch of Columbia. In 1983, with all of the engineering tests at Kennedy Space Center completed, the Enterprise embarked on a trip to France, Germany, Italy, England, and Canada before returning to the United States. After an appearance at the 1984 World's Fair, Enterprise was ferried to Vandenberg Air Force Base in California and used one last time for fit checks on what would have been the space shuttle's west coast launch site. It would have been interesting to see the shuttle fly from Vandenberg Air Force Base in an alternate universe. Sadly, we never got to see a shuttle launch from the West Coast. NASA abandoned the possibility of launching the space shuttle from Vandenberg in the late 1980s. The Challenger explosion caused the United States to utilize expendable launch vehicles for national security launches instead of the space shuttle. After the Challenger explosion, NASA considered converting Enterprise into a space-worthy orbiter. While the Enterprise may look externally similar to her sister ships, many of the internal systems were missing or had significantly changed during the design process. These differences meant that the refit would have necessitated changes that were more expensive than just building an orbiter from the ground up. After the fit checks in California were complete, the shuttle was ferried to the East Coast, where it became the property of the Smithsonian Institution. It was housed at the Dulles Airport before going on display at the Stephen F. udvar Center, part of the National Air and Space Museum. When I saw Enterprise for the first time, she was on display at the Udvar-Hazy Center, and it was an unforgettable sight. Enterprise is now on display at the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum in New York. The USS Intrepid is an Essex-class carrier that served in the Pacific Theater during World War II and later during the Vietnam War. The Intrepid has some ties to NASA history as well, since it was involved in the recoveries of Mercury astronaut Scott Carpenter and the Aurora Seven capsule. Later, John Young, Gus Grissom, and their Gemini Three spacecraft, Molly Brown, were also recovered by the USS Intrepid. The space shuttle was never able to fly without astronauts. The only approach and landing tests that had no crew members on board were the first few captive-carry ones. The captive-carry tests had the shuttle attached to a 747 carrier aircraft with no crew aboard the Enterprise. After that, all of the approach and landing tests involved flights with astronauts. Astronauts Fred Hayes, Gordon Fullerton, Joe Ingle, and Richard Truly all flew the shuttle during these tests. Hayes flew on the Apollo 13 mission, which was remarkably his only time in space. Astronauts Fullerton, Engel, and Truly all flew on a number of shuttle missions. Truly went on to become one of NASA's administrators from 1989 to 1992, and he was the first astronaut to be the head of NASA. Lastly for today, we've got the first flight of the Saturn I. On October 27, 1961, the first Saturn I launch vehicle lifted off from Cape Canaveral. The Saturn I was a much more powerful rocket than the ones that NASA had been launching up to that point, and this was due to the requirements of reaching the moon. The first test flight was only for the first stage of the launch vehicle. The upper stages were dummy stages that were destined to impact into the Atlantic Ocean. The second and third stages were ballasted with water to simulate how a fully loaded launch vehicle would perform. This entire stack weighed about 925,000 pounds. After a short weather hold, it was time to test the Saturn one, and I love this description of the initial seconds of launch. Launch came when the ground launch sequencer ordered the firing of a solid propellant charge. The gases from the ignition accelerated a turbine that in turn drove fuel and liquid oxygen pumps. Hydraulic valves opened, allowing RP-1 and LOX into the combustion chambers, along with a hypergolic fluid that ignited the mixture. The engines fired in pairs, developing full thrust in 1.4 seconds. A final rough combustion check was followed by the ejection of LOX and RP-1 fill masts from the booster base. The four hold-down arms released the rocket 3.97 seconds after first ignition, and SA-1 was airborne. That's it for this week. Be sure to subscribe to The Space Shot so you never miss an episode. I'd also love it if you could leave a review in Apple Podcasts. They help more people find out about the show. I've got a call-in number that you can call or text with questions or comments. Just hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. You can also connect with me at John Molnix on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, just about anywhere. All of these social links are in the show notes. Until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.